This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're going to hear from winners and losers in Tuesday's election a bit later in the show. But let's start with a former CU football star, Derek McCoy, who's challenging boys and men to prevent violence against women. He works with the Broncos on this, and his appeal comes as several stars in the NFL have been suspended for incidents of domestic violence. McCoy will speak this weekend in Boulder, part of a series of events about rape culture and sexual assault. And Derek, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. In your work, you're really mindful of language used on the field or in locker rooms, language about women and gay people. And the kinds of terms you encourage kids to avoid may come up in this conversation. So I want listeners to know that's a possibility. Absolutely. But when we talk about recent allegations or convictions for domestic violence and sexual assault, there are just too many players, unfortunately, to name them all. I think Ray Rice and Ezekiel Elliott are perhaps the two highest profile. After you left CU in 2003, you played on several NFL teams. And I want to know if you saw that kind of behavior or you knew that it happened amongst your teammates. Uh, it's something that I, I was aware of. Uh, I come from a home where my father was actually abusive towards my mom. Um, so I know how common it is. Um, fortunately, though, I didn't witness this kind of behavior when I was in the NFL. Um, I really didn't even witness too much language around uh, devaluing femininity. Um, but it, it goes deeper than that, just into the, the character that people sort of develop along the way and the, the views that we socialize about females and uh, those that we place in a lesser value in our society. Uh, they get internalized by people and how people behave behind closed doors might not necessarily mirror how they behave in a locker room or out in public. So even though you didn't witness it firsthand, that doesn't mean you're suggesting at all that it's not an issue. What do you think the scope of the problem is? I, I truly believe the scope of the problem is the way that we're socialized to view masculinity and then practice masculinity. And do you think that that is uh, even more true in a sport like football? Uh, honestly, I think it's true in all sectors for, for masculinity. Uh, when we hear the tech giants having these same issues and Hollywood having the same issues, the same issues exist in the military culture and the police culture as well. But it's been sort of a taboo topic. And it's sort of like, don't break bro code and talk about these things and, and really bring to light what we've kept kind of hidden for so many, so many years. Don't break bro code, you say. Mm hmm. Uh, you have said uh, in previous interviews that when you left football, you had angst towards the culture of the game. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what that means, what that angst was? Well, the angst was sort of this whole... Um win at all culture, but also this sort of, you have to fit a certain, a certain mold in order to be a kind of guy that gets, um, boosted up to the, uh, active roster in the NFL. Um, I was good enough as a football player. Um, there's no doubt about that in, in my mind and, and ask some veterans that I played with. Um, but when it came down to it, I didn't necessarily fit the mold of, uh, of the kind of guy that they might want to hire. Um, unfortunately, I'm probably more like Colin Kaepernick, um, who is a person that gets weeded out pretty efficiently when you don't fall in line and uh, live up to this sort of stereotypical way of presenting yourself. And do you think that's about masculinity? Was that about masculinity for you? Um, to me, it was about, I was, you know, as a, as a young person, we always get preached team play. 
and team first. Uh, that's the message in high school. That's the message in college. Uh, and then when I was on my path to the NFL, I remember my father telling me, D, you need to maybe be a little bit more selfish. And I was kind of like, well, that contradicts all of the uh, the paths that I've taken to success. I, I've been a team player and I've emphasized, you know, I play a role. Uh, and when I when I got to the NFL, I realized like, wow, I, I am less selfish in the, than a lot of people that they would prefer on their rosters. Oh, interesting. Uh, football is obviously a violent sport. Mm-hmm. Is it realistic to ask people to be violent on the field, mm-hmm. you know, going all out for a few hours, then asking them to be completely nonviolent off the field? Sort of switching uh, that thing. I was just talking with uh, Alicia Sweeney in the in the meeting room over there before I came in here. She's another host here at Colorado yeah. Public Radio. Yeah, and um, kind of started this this conversation and really... Uh, I really think it. we as athletes are performance artists in a sense. And we can, uh, there's some training happening in the NFL right now with actors and actresses and helping players to have sort of this processing of who they are on the field versus off the field. So huh. for me, it was like I could, I could go on the field and I'm not a violent guy. I could go on the field and perform this art of football at a high level and then come back off the field and come back to reality. So if that's something that we're trained in, um, because because the way I see it, football is not going away anytime soon. So if we train these guys to process and change who they are on the field and off the field, it, it's possible because the majority of us are able to do that. So the NFL is working with Hollywood or with actors mm-hmm. to achieve uh, more of a differentiation between who someone is on the field and off the field. Do they do this with domestic violence in mind? They do. They actually do seminars where, where they do scenarios uh, relating to off-the-field issues and domestic violence being one of them. Uh, not every NFL market does this kind of work. Um, Baltimore is, is one of the NFL markets that actually does this program. Mm. I'd love to see uh, the work that the Broncos are doing with us at Project Pave and what the Baltimore Ravens are doing. I, I'd love to see the other NFL markets adopt these initiatives. Project PAVE is the organization that you are with now, educating kids to try to prevent domestic violence. And we'll talk more about that work in just a little bit. But I'm really curious how you got into it. So you mentioned that your father mm-hmm. was abusive. Mm-hmm. Was was that an impetus or did it come later? That was an impetus. After I stopped playing football, uh, pursuing professional football in 2006, roughly, I, I realized at that point I was good enough at football, but I was doing football because it was easiest for me. I was really hiding behind being a football player. So when I decided to stop playing, I had to confront something that I was afraid of, which was speaking in public. So I started substitute teaching in Mapleton Public Schools. I really liked it, coaching as well. These are the and, schools just north of Denver. I think these are schools you attended at. Yes, sir, a in uh, Thornton, Thornton, Colorado. Um, and as I was teaching, they, they asked me to to do full-time over at Global Leadership Academy. And this lady from Project Pave named Annette Rodriguez, who is actually the associate director of women's studies at Mesa State University now. And who uh, does this work trying to prevent domestic violence. Yes, sir. She came in representing Project Pave and and gave this one week workshop for our group of eighth grade boys I was working with and I was blown away I was like whoa where was this when I was in high school blown away by what in particular well it was addressing 
relationship violence, teen dating violence, talking about all the dynamics that play into that, talked about gender stereotypes and how that plays a role in relationship violence, and really just having a platform for young people to reflect and set standards and boundaries in their relationships. When you heard her talk about gender violence and the language around it, did it transport you to some of what you heard in the NFL? And frankly, at CU? Not necessarily... um, Anything I heard at, I mean, the same things I heard through childhood are the same things I heard at CU in the NFL. Yeah. It's the typical, stereotypical male conditioning. So that to me spans outside of sports. Um, and, And when I saw this, I was like, wow. This is something that I think everybody should be exposed to as a young person. Um, and then I, I wanted to get involved with Project Pave. A job came opened. And, and then a few years after working at Project Pave, the Denver Broncos came to us on the heels of Ray Rice punching his now wife on the elevator. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, you know what? We want to do something about this. Is there any type of programming you could collaborate with us on? And I raised my hand like, hey, I'm an ex-football player. Um, would love to work with your middle school football program, the Futures football program. There was a lot of criticism about how how the NFL handled the Rice case mm-hmm. because his punishment was, I, I think, less than it would have been if he'd like worn the wrong socks mm-hmm. with his uniform. So I wonder when the Broncos approached you, did you have some skepticism that they were really committed to this idea of working with young people to prevent violence against women? Uh, absolutely. Initially, when we were in the first meeting with them, it was full skepticism. And we basically said, we know that how the NFL has handled these issues in the past. Um, fortunately, we have this technology now that you catch it on camera and you can't really deny that. But this has been something that's been happening in male culture um, for years and years and years. The Rice incident was caught on camera in this elevator mm-hmm. in Atlantic City. Yeah, but most of the incidents in the past were not caught on camera. So they were able to brush those under the rug. And, and the same thing in the police culture and the military culture, not caught on camera. So, you know, the public doesn't really do much. So when the public has eyes on it, it's like, all right, we need to do something. And we just wanted to make sure they weren't trying to check a box with us, that they wanted Mm -hmm. to do some ongoing work. So we started off, did one year with their futures football program, met with 10 teams, five workshops each. Um, So we wanted to go deeper than just a one-time check the box workshop. So they invited us to do two more years. And then after that, They've invited us now to do three more years starting this spring. So I'd like you to take us into what these trainings, these classes sound like. You're working with young athletes and you are trying to change the kind of macho culture that you say has created a really unhealthy environment in professional sports and beyond. Mm -hmm. What does that sound like? So really, we start off by trying to do everything we can to create a safe space so that these young guys and their coaches will feel comfortable speaking up about uncomfortable topics. Like what? Um, Like the way that we learn how to be masculine. Um, There's a a documentary called The Mask You Live In uh, that's on, on Netflix. And in that documentary, they have an activity where a gentleman takes some boys through a mask activity and it talks about how we're taught to show certain things to the world, how we're taught to express certain things and other things we're taught to keep to ourselves. So we do this mask activity with them and it really gives us a sharp reflection around uh, what we're taught as guys to do and not to do. Give me an example of what 
guys are taught to do? So for me, uh, when it comes to relationship violence and sexual assault culture, um, what we're taught to do is to suppress our emotions, to feminize our emotions, to deny those emotions. And then on the flip side, we're also taught to be aggressive towards females. Um, if we're not aggressive towards females or demonstrating this strong attraction towards femininity, we get called gay. We pardon my language. We get called a pussy. Um, and these things are devaluing to femininity. Obviously they feminize gay people and they really control our identity. And, and when we're taught to suppress our emotions, where do those emotions go? They get buried inside of us and they turn into anger, aggression, uh, violence towards self and violence towards others. You're saying that violence is a result of shoving down inside ourselves something that is authentic, mm -hmm. but that among men is not valued. Absolutely. I, I have conversations about how it's pretty stereotypical across the board, across the globe for us to strengthen our minds and to keep our bodies healthy by doing exercise and healthy dieting. But when it comes to emotions for guys, that's a part of ourself that we're taught shouldn't be there. That's alien. And it is a part of ourself that we can strengthen to become a whole and complete individual. How do young people react to this message? And how do you, how do you know you're making a difference and not just getting a sort of nod in the room? And then they go back to the, the, the dominant culture. So there is, you know, I'm not going to have a full shift in the paradigm by doing these workshops, but there is deep engagement. We do activities. We, we really like to emphasize dialogue. So I'm not coming in there and just talking at these young people. I'm digging out their, their experiences and their perceptions. What if they said that surprise you? Um, what they've, I mean, I've had guys come up afterwards and say, you don't realize what kind of impact you're having on us. Um, when they give the feedback on the surveys, they say, I wish there was more sessions. It was nice to be able to talk about our emotions, um, and, and just being our true self. It was refreshing to be our true self. So this is something that these young guys are really inclined and sort of like they're, they're relieved when we start having these conversations. Um, the challenge comes with coaches, um, who are more ingrained in this stereotypical way of being masculine. But yeah, I wonder if, if they worry that, I don't know, boys might start to feel shamed or demonized mm -hmm. or that, you know, masculinity is under attack. I wouldn't say that masculinity is under attack at all with this. It's really that we're trying to support masculinity so that we don't kill ourselves so that we don't beat our intimate partners, uh, so that we're not doing mass shootings, um, so that we're learning how to be peaceful with ourselves and others in this world. Um, because ultimately there's a way to do that. And the majority of the coaches, uh, who we work with, who these are high school coaches meeting with their future, uh, high school players. So their middle schoolers at the time, but the majority of the coaches are like, yeah, this makes sense. And they start to adopt it. There's some coaches that are really old school. You can't teach an old dog, new tricks kind of thing, uh, who give a lot of pushback. Uh, but those are the minority of coaches. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Derek McCoy. He played wide receiver for CU, then was on several NFL teams. And now he's part of Project PAVE, which educates kids, uh, many of them young athletes, to prevent domestic violence. And he does this work in part with the Denver Broncos. Um, it, it's likely statistically that very few of the young people you are educating will reach the NFL. Mm -hmm. How do you bring the change that you're seeking to the league, do you think? Um, it, it starts off by demonstrating that it's effective at these levels. 
and, and then as more traction is gained, I, I hope to move up the ladder. Um, it'll you you nice. want to do these workshops with grown adults? Absolutely. Playing. I mean, I hadn't, when I left the NFL, I hadn't had these kind of workshops and I was still kind of stuck in this sort of idea that I was just a football player and didn't really um, know how to embrace my whole self. So it's been a process for me and I'm still growing. I, I still have a lot of work to do myself. We've been talking a lot about how this culture builds in the NFL, but it also happens in college. Uh, when you were at CU, in fact, there was a recruiting scandal. The school eventually settled with two female students who said they were raped by football recruits. Mm-hmm. And a female player, Katie Nida, said she was raped by a teammate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were at the school around that time. No, you... I was. Katie Nida is one of my teammates. Mm. So I actually know Katie. And so you were well aware of what was going on at that point? I wouldn't say I was well aware of what was going on. Um outside of the the practices and games that we were a part of um i didn't know what katie i didn't hang out with katie in a personal capacity um she was a a nice young lady a a good teammate um i do think that gary barnett the head coach at the time got thrown under the bus um for false reasons at the time he was basically shamed for answering a question I think a little bit too passionately on ESPN. And they asked her, um, asked him, you know, how was she as a kicker in the midst of all this sexual assault allegations? And he said, she was a terrible kicker. Um, she wasn't a great kicker, but she was a great person. Um, and he got fired basically for the comments he made about her kicking. Gary Barnett was actually the kind of coach that he didn't, uh, he, he, uh, he asked that no hazing took place. Um, he talked about the percentage of players on the team that were likely to be gay um, and really was a humanizing kind of coach. I, I took a lot of um, what I do as a professional from Gary Barnett, and, and I think he did a phenomenal job while I was there. And but yet it, there were problems, deep-seated problems at the time. That and, I think go beyond any one individual. Uh-huh. Just recently, there was another incident. A former CU assistant football coach was accused of domestic violence, and the mm-hmm. head coach, athletic director, and administrator mm-hmm. uh, were punished for how they handled that situation. Yeah. From your perspective, do you think that more recently that was a sign of progress or proof that not enough has changed? I think that's proof that not enough has changed, that these kind of initiatives that we're doing with Project PAVE need to happen at all levels. And to me, it's quite similar to the Jerry Sandusky case at Penn State, where people realize, oh, this is happening. Okay, we don't want our university to be known for this. So as opposed to doing what's right in the moment, they try and, you know, go through different channels and maybe they don't go to the direct channel they should right away and they end up looking like they're trying to hide these issues. I keep thinking about how college football and NFL players so often become icons. You know, people wear their jerseys, see them in commercials, Uh, The culture of tough masculinity is so ingrained. Um, How can you see to it that the good players are looked up to, the ones that model good behavior, I suppose, and to chip away against that culture of extreme masculinity? Well, I think it does start with with media in general. Um, There's a tendency in this country to highlight the the mass shooter and bring their name up. And there's a tendency to bring up the domestically abusive athlete and highlight them. And that gets brought to the surface a lot more than guys like Isaac Bruce, who I was with in St. Louis, who 
when I was struggling because I wasn't getting any reps in St. Louis at the time, uh, I came and I sat with him and, I, and he said, hey, what's up, Real McCoy? And I shrugged and put my head down. And I was like, I used to be Real McCoy. And he looked me in the eye and made sure I caught eye contact. And he said, you'll always be Real McCoy. And that man in that instant was that that light that I needed to say, hey, there's more to you than just football. And um, these are the kind of men that I got exposed through and continue to get exposed through uh, in football. And, and that's the majority, not the minority. So if we can highlight the sort of positive social norms. Yeah, I'm not sure how you would do that, right? The, the, a good guy does something good is not always a compelling headline. It's it's not. But if we can if we can make that a compelling headline some way, get creative and, and start to embrace the positivity in our society, I think that would be something that could shift the way that we view each other and the way we view ourselves because if folks realize that you know who I am is is more like Isaac Bruce than Ray Rice and that's the majority of football players um, then I think more football players would gravitate that way Isaac Bruce the former wide receiver thank you for being with us thank you it's Derek McCoy he played wide receiver for CU then was on several NFL teams and he'll talk Sunday about gender-based violence it's part of a series at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder It's running alongside a play about sexual violence. Pesha Rudnick is artistic director at Local Theater Company, which is putting it on. Our production uses humor to explore this issue. It's a really funny play, and people constantly give me a strange look on their face when I say, yeah, we're doing a comedy about assault and assault culture. Um, But our playwright is so skillful at using humor so that we can see ourselves in the normalization of rape culture and ultimately change ourselves. This play is called Rape of the Sabine Women, who were part of a tribe abducted during the founding of the Roman Empire, but it's set in modern times. Our play takes place in a contemporary high school with 17-year-olds, you know, studying art history and discovering how deep our history and how deep the culture of assault kind of runs in our civilization. Rudnick says since the play opened a couple of weeks ago, she's been approached by people in the audience telling her they're part of the statistics of sexual assault. It's just been a revealing experience for us to to realize that, you know, when we're in an audience of 100 people and one in six has been raped, we are among both perpetrators and victims of assault constantly. The Rape of the Sabine Women by Grace B. Mathias runs through November 19th at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder. Schools in Mesa County have leaky roofs, crumbling parking lots, and out-of-date textbooks. Voters haven't been inclined to do anything about that until now. Yesterday, they approved two tax-raising ballot measures. District 51 School Board President John Williams apparently broke into tears when the results came in. He's in our studio now on Main Street in Grand Junction. And John, welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. So you had prepared three speeches for three possible outcomes. Did you, did you think that this was not going to pass? I thought it would be close, and I was not confident in any outcome. Uh, we'd worked extremely hard, and we had days that we were convinced it we, we, we were doing the right thing and it was going to pass, and we had days when we didn't. Then we watched the ballots come in, and 
new voters and the breakdown of Republicans and Democrats and ages and stuff. And I can tell you I was not uh, all that confident. Uh, you know, critics of these tax-raising measures said that it, they wouldn't benefit students directly enough. Um, how do you think students benefit because of the passage of, of, of these measures? Oh, I think everything on these measures is uh, directed to benefit kids in classrooms. I think, well, the board spent two years crafting these ballot issues with the idea that we wanted to be under $10 a month for a $200,000 home and to do things in the classroom to benefit teachers. We went to every school. We went to every staff meeting twice. And this is the Board of Education that did this, no administrators. And we went in with our list and then said, what's right and wrong with this? And we came out with um, a list of items that are will help kids and help teachers. Uh, five more days a school year. We go 165 days a year. In Denver, you go 180 days. Contact time's big for kids. We haven't had a curriculum update in this um, uh, school district for eight or nine years. We teach out of some books where Clinton is still the president. Those sorts of things are going to help kids. Uh, teachers also came back to us and said one of the biggest things they wanted was more technology, and there was an $11 million package in this for uh, devices in classrooms. So um, the criticism just isn't accurate. Uh, very briefly, we have about a minute left. Um, our reporter Allison Sherry covered this story leading up to the election, and she pointed out that the last time uh, voters in Mesa County had approved a tax measure for schools, current high schoolers were in preschool. Um, what is it that about this package that you think made it pass this time in about 30 seconds? I, you know, I think a couple of things. One is the specificity of it. Number two was it was a $10 increase uh, for $200,000 house. Number three, I think there are a lot of people in Mesa County that are ready to turn a corner and invest in their future and invest in a, what they think is an economy. And it takes investment and it takes a 10-year or a 15-year plan going forward. So I think all that stuff helped to get it there. But I want to add that I think politics is hard work. Uh, we did this through a, a ground game, and it was every day knocking doors and every day putting up signs. And I, I think that's largely uh, is the reason for our success. John Williams is president of the Mesa County District 51 School Board. Grand Junction was actually one of several conservative cities in Colorado that approved tax increases for schools. Colorado Springs' largest district got its first hike in 17 years. And in Greeley-Evans, voters had never approved a property tax boost to fund school operations. That district is among the lowest funded in the state. But last night, Superintendent Deirdre Pilch got a victory. Alongside supporters, she screamed, yes, yes, as preliminary results came in. Then she called her mom, who's 79 and lives in Arizona. Mom, we're, we're winning. We're going to win. We're more than 3,000 votes ahead. I know. I know. I'm happy for the kids, too. Thank you. Thank you. Still, Pilch says the money won't even get her district up to average per student funding in Colorado. But she says she is happy with the show of support from her community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And if you could assign a theme to election results in Denver, it might be something like this.
Yes, Denver voters are ready to drop some serious dough on improvements to their city. In Tuesday's election, they approved Denver's largest bond package ever. Nearly a billion dollars worth of upgrades to transportation, police and fire stations, parks and libraries. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock celebrated its passage last night, and he joins me from City Hall. Mayor, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be with you this this, this morning, rather. There are uh, hundreds of projects on this list. Uh, what are the first improvements you think Denverites will see? Well, I think... Uh First, the Denver, we got to thank the people of Denver because they've made a tremendous investment in their city. Uh, I'm very proud to wake up this morning as a Denverite, a city where people recognize the opportunities and are willing to make the investments necessary to remain globally competitive. I think the area that we are probably most uh, ready to roll with will be um, our, our infrastructure projects around street repaving. Um, those are, you know, quite frankly, uh, areas that we are ready to roll with different uh teams and uh, of our public works department and uh, after meeting with the team this morning we recognize those are probably some of the first that you'll see us moving uh, forward with i know that many denverites are not uh, unfamiliar with potholes these days <laughs> not in the city that we live in not with our arid temperatures our, our constant uh, freezing and thawing during the fall and winter months so it is a challenge that we have to deal with uh, being where we live um, and uh, with our, our uh, constant shifting uh, ground as well. So, but we have a tremendous A-plus team that is out there. Come springtime, they are filling hundreds of potholes, thousands of potholes, quite frankly, uh, to keep this city safe and moving forward. But this is a, more than just road repaving. A lot of this has to do as well with transit and I think trying to ease congestion. Is that right? Absolutely. We knew going into this bond, and I remember saying to the team, I would be really surprised if transportation mobility issues don't rise to the top of the priorities that the people want us to address. And sure enough, as we came out of our community engagement, we had 4,000 ideas. Majority of them were centered around uh, transportation mobility. Uh, when you look at how the dollars were spar- parsed out in terms of uh, sparsed out in terms of uh, how we allocated the dollars between the seven different uh, bond questions, uh, more than half of those dollars went to um, transportation mobility. And if you look at the vote from last night, the highest percent of the voted, voters uh, voted yes on transportation mobility um, package. So we're not surprised that uh, congestion and how we ease congestion, how we create a more multimodal community um, is a top priority for the people of Denver. Some $431 million for transportation and mobility. That's going to include uh, different takes on bus transportation in in the city of Denver. There's, as you've said, a lot of deferred maintenance in this, uh, but a lot of construction too. Renovations at Red Rocks, the zoo, Denver Health. Of course, that's alongside all the private construction going on. The I-70 project is about to begin. Uh, Does the city give some thought to how all these projects are spaced out or should folks in Metro Denver expect a lot of construction delays? Well, you know what? We're going to do everything we can to manage the coordination of these projects. I have what we call a bond leadership team, um, and we'll ultimately have on board a project uh, management team. And the goal, of course, is to manage the the, uh, cadence of projects over the next 10 years that will be rolled out by the city. But that also means coordinating with the state, coordinating with the private uh, sector, um, as well as the nonprofit sector as we develop this city and it continues to develop. So, yes, that bond leadership team's job will be to make sure that that coordination is happening and that we have uh, we minimize the impact on our uh, the quality of life in our city while we are trying to make it better. 
And so this is a team of uh, cross-departmental, cross-agencies, cross-external uh, or with uh, external independent uh, bodies like Excel, Comcast, Denver Water, so that when we do crack open a road, uh, they can go in and do what they have to do, and uh, we can close it back up, pave what we wanted to pave, uh, and we don't have to do it twice because they have to come back in and do some utility work. But, yeah, coordination is going to be critical. I want to talk specifically about the libraries. So we've done a lot of coverage on Colorado Public Radio about libraries becoming, in some ways, day shelters for the homeless, uh, the central location in particular. Uh, they carry a drug to treat overdoses. It was after someone died from overdosing on its premises. Uh, there have been reports of assaults. Uh, and with this bond package having passed nearly $70 million for libraries, what do you think will change? Well, I think it's important, one, we don't allow for what has occurred at the Central Library and at maybe one or two of our other libraries were homeless, uh, some of our homeless uh, residents, as well as uh, some folks who decide to partake in the opiate um, issues of our community, um, could kind of characterize really how our libraries are operating. They're still a, a very important place for people to go and to access information around the world that they don't have the ability to access through their own uh, personal means or at home. And how will this money um, help you, them? Well, those the, what you're going to find a better Wi-Fi. You're going to find um, um, probably more up-to-date uh, technology and resources available for families and in, or for individuals doing research, um, and also updated uh, re, uh, um, resources in terms of books as well as technological materials available to them. I've walked through some of these libraries. I got to tell you, some of the older libraries are Carnegie libraries. They're in disrepair. We've got uh, water damage. We've got uh, just antiquated systems in those libraries. And so we're going to go in and improve some of those systems. And we're going to try to improve the central library so that there are no, there are areas where we got to address in, in order to prove uh, safety, but also to create a more, uh, better flow where we can keep an eye on the library as a whole and keep everyone safe and uh, more accessible to the resources that are there. The Green Roof Initiative has not, I understand, been officially called as of this morning, uh, but yes votes lead by 4,000. This would require new buildings larger than 25,000 square feet be built with space for gardens on top or solar panels or a mix. The bigger the building, the bigger the area for plants or solar panels. You'd come out against this saying, quote, it goes too far too fast. Uh, you also said this wasn't a collaborative enough approach and had some concerns about the cost of green roofs. Uh, this looks like it's headed to passage. How do you think the city will plan to work with the stakeholders here? Ryan, we also said that our values were aligned, and when the stakeholders, the proponents of uh, the Green Roof Initiative, better known as I-300, came in, I also shared with them that our values are aligned. And uh, while we disagree with how, uh, we don't disagree with the what. Um, and the question is, how do we kind of align those values? And now that uh, it looks to, to be that it's going to pass, how do we make sure that there's a responsible implementation going forward? Um, and so that's what we're going to work on. If, if the, at the end of the day it's certified that it wins, then we will have to, as a city, figure out how best to implement it within the laws and property rights that people have and uh, make sure that the spirit of the, the um, law that the people have uh, uh, passed is implemented appropriately. I'm told that it's actually grown 
uh, in support. It, it has even more votes than than four thousand ahead. But um, you say your your values are aligned. Just speak to what what is that value? What do you see as the value of about sustainability? Words? About yeah, it's about sustainability. It's about cutting in our carbon footprint here in Denver. Something we've been working on through our efforts around energized Denver and really working with our uh, our development community to build more energy efficient for, uh, buildings. It's about what we're doing around, you know, automobile um, travel in the city of Denver and electrification of our city, really encouraging people to get into cleaner vehicles or to choose other modes of transportation in the city that are cleaner uh, in the city of Denver. Um, it's about us converting our own fleet as a city of Denver um, to a more uh, energy efficient and cleaner um, um, uh, fleet. So it, we all, we share the same values there that, that, that we weren't going to argue with. It was, do you mandate this? And two, what does it mean in terms of the impact, the ultimate increase in cost of developing buildings, not only buildings in the private sector, but buildings in the city? For example, we just passed this bond. We don't have, for example, as we get ready to expand the convention center, dollars programmed in for this type of uh, infrastructure on the roof of the uh, convention center. So these are concerns that we have, uh, we had going in that we have to be uh, considerate of. Uh, but uh, proponents would say that over the long term, there's a cost savings here to consider as well. That's part of the arithmetic. Well, ultimately, there you know the ROI in the long term, yes. But today, where we are have already funded uh, the library, excuse me, the expansion of the convention center, for example, we didn't have dollars programmed into uh, that budget, and uh, it's a very it's a very tight budget as it is. So I don't want to get into that as much. But the reality is that those are the things we have to look at as a city as we look to implement this uh, this new law. You said ROI there, return on investment. Uh, I, I suppose, right. finally, Michael Hancock, it, will this be, to some extent, your legacy as mayor? I mean, this is an enormous amount of money that voters have agreed to spend. You know, I, quite frankly and candidly, don't spend a lot of time thinking about legacy. What I think about is, here's a city that I live in that I'm very proud of, and and I plan to spend the rest of my life in. And uh, ultimately, what are those things we do today that will lead us to um, a uh, improved quality of life going forward and uh, continue to be the city that we're all proud to call home and proud to, to attract business to. So, you know, the reality is today we are living out the the reality of, of what Federico Pena did, what Wellington Webb did. Um, and so what I'm doing today, these are things that we'll hopefully be living in the realities 20, 30 years from now. And so I don't really have time to worry about that. My job is to make sure that we have the administrative structure in place to very responsibly and accountably in, uh, implement this this uh, very uh, strong stewardship that the people of Denver have granted uh, the city government to do on their behalf. And that's what I'm focused on at this point in time. Thanks so much for being with us. You bet, Ryan. Thank you. It's Denver Mayor Michael Hancock joining us the day after an election which Denver voters approved a nearly billion-dollar package of bonds. The Denver School Board got a bit of a jolt yesterday. Voters sent a mixed message about the district's reform efforts. What had been unanimous support for Superintendent Tom Bosberg's agenda may soften a bit with the election of two candidates backed by the teachers' union. Several things stood out about these races, like big spending from outside groups, and in northeast Denver, the candidacy of a 19-year-old named Tay Anderson. He hoped to join the DPS board just months after his high school graduation. Anderson lost, but as we're about to hear, this is just the first step in what he hopes will be a long political career. Tay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You told the education news site Shockbeat last summer that you might run for president one day. 
Uh, here you are making it through, though losing your first big campaign. Are you uh, disillusioned or still enthusiastic? I'm still enthusiastic about my future in politics, and I'm still enthusiastic about our our young people and their ability to lead. And I might be the first 19-year-old to run for office in our state's history, but I definitely will not be the last. Have you looked that up? Are you the first 19-year-old? I am the first 19-year-old in state history. I'm the fir- youngest co- candidate in state history to run for office. Okay. Uh, not something we could confirm, but, but uh, something that you've looked into. You graduated in May from Manual High School in Denver. I wonder if there was a single incident or issue that made you decide to run for school board in Denver. Well, it was when the Denver School Board decided to co-locate my high school with a middle school, and I was strongly opposed to co-locations. Um, and so I wanted to stand up and be a part of the change instead of making our students feel like they did not have a voice. And so when I asked the school board, how do we get a student on the Board of Education? They told me you need to be 18 years old and you need to run like everybody else. And so that's what I did. I put strapped up, ready to go and ready to fight uh, this school board, the school board election. And um, we didn't prevail, but I'll be back. What about co-location bothered mm-hmm. you uh, as a manual high school student? It was the fact that we are mixing um, middle school students with the high school students. I really feel like that um, when you leave middle school, you're, you, you are leaving a building to go to a new building to start a new, new walk. Um, and so I was really opposed to having near 20-year-olds in the same building with 12-year-olds um, because I believe that the maturity gap is something that's really huge in our schools, and I think that's something that all of our students need to be able to learn in their independent spaces. You are talking to us today because it's rare uh, for a 19-year-old to run for office. But I don't want to pass this off as a novelty. You got 25% of the vote. The Denver Post editorial board endorsed another candidate, but said it was, uh, quoting here, quite impressed by you. The Post also said, as a college freshman, you are, quoting again, not quite ready for the rigors of public office. Uh, How much do you think age hurt you? It it probably hurt a lot. Um, I do believe that the age probably hit us as, as much, as, I mean, as the biggest thing that hit us. Um, but I do believe that we showed that eight, 18, 19-year-olds do have a place in today's society. I've had dozens of people for the first time getting out to vote for myself. Um, and we got 25% of the vote, and some people said that we wouldn't even get 50 votes. Um, and we ended up with 3,960 votes, and that's an honor to represent those 3,960 people that believed in our message to make sure that Denver Public Schools District 4 was uh, going to elect somebody that they knew that was unbought, unbothered, and unafraid. Unbought, unbothered, and unafraid. What yes. Were there moments you were afraid, though? Uh, there were moments where I looked back and I asked myself, what what am I doing? But there was never a moment where I was afraid or scared. I was ready to take on the challenge because this is something that I put my, myself into and I was going to fight it all the way out to the end, just like I did last night. Let's talk about your political aspirations from here. Uh, first of all, you're, you're in college, I think, to become a, a teacher and then eventually a principal. Do I have that right? Yes. And eventually you have said that you'd like to run for mayor, possibly then governor, and maybe president. Uh, Why why do you think education is the route that is working in education is the route to that? Because I believe that education is the key foundation for our students, and that is what's going to help shape their future. 
Um, and I, be, I want to be on the front lines with our students as an elected official or not, making sure that their voices are always heard. Because I've been in situations where there has been nobody in my corner to hear my voice. And so now that is, that is a reason why I ran is because I've been in so many marginalized groups. It's time that we get those students that are in marginalized groups and get them active. And that's what I'm doing. Um, and I'm going to continue to fight for it as a teacher in a classroom, as a principal in a school. If I do decide to pursue, when I do per, pursue elected office, um, the end goal is not to sit in the Oval Office. If I stop as a city council member or if I run for school board again, and that's all I do with my do with my political career, as long as I'm helping elevate the voices of young people, that's what I care about. You talk about marginalized groups. Uh, what does that mean to you? What, uh, yeah, it means to me is like homeless students. There are almost 2,000 homeless students in Denver Public Schools. And that hits me home, that hits home because I was one of those students before. Um, I've, been a student, I've been a student that's been in and out of foster care. Um, and we have a lot of students that battle with different rigors at home. And so they don't have an opportunity or they feel, some of them feel like they don't have the person at school to come to to let it out, to let them know that, hey, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I need to know somebody's in my corner. And I didn't have that opportunity when I was in school, majority of my, uh, my career in high school, middle school, or elementary school. And so now I want to take my experiences and I want to be able to let people know you can do it too. It's uh, – it's really about showing kids that, yes, you can make it out and you can do anything that you put your mind to. Tay Anderson is a freshman at Metropolitan State University of Denver. He ran uh, in a three-way contest to represent Northeast Denver on the school board and came in third. The winner was Jennifer Bacon, who had been endorsed by the Denver Teachers Union. Finally today, Denver musician John Runnels performs under the name Morning Bear. He draws inspiration from indie folk artists like Fleet Foxes and Bon Iver and adds instruments like flute and cello. He's on tour in Europe with a stop in Brest, France, chosen because it's one of Denver's sister cities. Morning Bear was recently joined in the CPR performance studio by a string quartet and performed a Beatles classic. up the rice in a church where a wedding has been Lives in a dream waits at the window Wearing a face that she keeps in a jar by the door Who is it for? All the They all come from All the lonely people Do they all belong? Father Mackenzie Writing the words to a sermon that no one will hear No one comes near, look at him working Donning his socks in the night when there's nobody there What does he care of?
Morning Bear in CPR's performance studio. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.